good morning, everyone. Hope you all had a good week. I didn't. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't bad. bad. Just got to deal with myself every day. That's tough enough, right? Man, do I ever need God's grace for that. Turn your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We're going to be uh, pushing through Romans here. Once again, I jumped aboard after... Brother Sean had cleared us from Romans 9, now I'm safe, on to Romans 10. Reading the first four verses today, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Let's pray. Holy Father, we just come before you today. And Lord, we are just so thankful and grateful that you died for us, Lord, that we can live, that we can come here and celebrate you. Lord, where would we be without you? We would have no hope. We'd have no joy, but only gloom and the wrath of God. Lord, I would ask today that you'd make yourself known to your people today through the proclamation of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts this morning. And you would remove any obstacle, any pride, any diversion that would keep us from loving you and worshiping you. And most importantly, hearing from you this morning. Lord, help us to put away a critical spirit, Lord. Help us to put away anything, Lord God, if there's unforgiveness in our heart, if there's bitterness, if we are cynical people, Lord, would you cleanse us of our sin? Lord, I pray for the body of Christ here at 116. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, as the family of God. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the love that we have for one another here. And that that love would continually grow. Help us to unite, Lord God, for the truth, for the gospel, and for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Within these four verses, uh, we see three points that stick out quite obviously. The first one is a new heart produces new desires. The second point is a false heart produces false motives. And the last point, Christ is the end for all who believe. Point one, a new heart. Let's deal with this reality of the believer's life. When God gives us, his people, a new heart. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Very clearly we can see that Paul, under the power of the Spirit of God, is not dealing with the old man. He's dealing with a new heart. New desires that have been birthed 
by the Spirit of God. And we see this transformation when it happens within the life of a believer. As Brother Ivan was saying this morning, he prays, he communicates with God. And his prayer isn't just about himself and his, his own needs and the benefits of being a believer, but his heart cries out in communication to God for others. He says, my heart's desire, which actually means my earnest and my sincere wish that Israel would be saved. We see this reflected in the life of Christ when he says in John 7.38, he says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take, our, take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, when the Lord converts us and he saves us, Jesus doesn't want to come into our hearts and live. He doesn't want to come into the very cesspool and sewer of our lives and live. He wants to remove the sewer. He removes the heart and gives us a new heart. And this is the power, the gospel's power and the power of God when he transforms a human life. Listen to what Jeremiah said. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. After that time declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Paul's desire and all-consuming passion was that they may be saved. And it's interesting, if we, if we ponder this and meditate upon this reality of what Paul is expressing here, this, this literal burden upon him, this all-consuming passion, this all-consuming desire is that Israel would be saved. He's not talking about salvific from present destruction. And though we see that proclaimed throughout the word of God, but he's de declaring the same gospel he's been preaching all through Romans right from the beginning of this chapter. And if we read in Romans 9.30, where really this chapter is provoked, it says, what shall we say then that the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained to righteousness? Even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And this is what we're dealing with here is that this sovereign God, Paul is dealing with, 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 this, with this, not necessarily this idea, but this truth of Scripture that God is sovereign in salvation. He's dealing with this in the sense of Israel and the, and the, the Gentile nations. That the end of all of this, even in the end of all the madness of our searching and obsessive seeking, the end of it comes to Christ. It all points to Christ. And if it doesn't land upon Christ, then you are outside of the grace of God. But in all of this, when God does visit you, when God does transform your life, when God does change you and make you into a new creation, you most certainly will be a man or woman of prayer. Because this is your lifeline. This is your communication with God. But beyond that as well, you will begin to care for others. You will develop 
a passion and a desire to see others saved, even your enemies. Charles Spurgeon said it best when he said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself, be sure of that. What he's saying is it's linked with our salvation. If you are converted, if you are born again, if you've been transformed by the power of God, if the Spirit of God lives within you, then there is going to be within you a passion and desire and a sincere wish for others to be saved, others to come and know Jesus Christ. Robert Haldane writes, he says this, we see here the love of a Christian to his Bitterest enemies. Paul was abused, reviled, and persecuted by his countrymen. Yet he not only forgave them, but constantly prayed for their conversion. Unbelievers often accuse Christians, though very falsely, as haters of mankind, because they faithfully declare that there is no salvation but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting because you usually don't experience any kind of persecution or turmoil or adversity for baking somebody cookies or doing good works or a nice gesture. But the moment you declare Jesus Christ is the only way to God and the only way to be saved, then all of hell breaks loose. Once we proclaim these truths vocally, that's when the persecution starts. Remember, Paul was regarded by them as an apostate. He had abandoned them when bearing their commission. And while on his way to execute their favorite purposes and had preached the doctrine which they had sent him to destroy, Paul himself was now proclaiming the very doctrine that he was commissioned by the Jews to go and destroy. Not just the theology, not just the doctrine, but the people. He was on a mission to murder the people of God, the true people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts 9, verse 1 and 2, it says, And Saul, just so you can get kind of a picture and an idea of how the depth of depravity and the depth of sin and the depth of hatred. Listen to these words. It says, Paul was breathing out threats and it uses the word slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Went unto the high priest and, listen, here's his, here's his past desires. He had desires, but it's this, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to synagogues, that if he found any of this way, these people, these Christians, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. The word you have to see here is really this idea of threats and slaughter. Threats and slaughter. Just think about this for a minute. The word slaughter usually denotes great destruction of life by violent means, as the slaughter of men in battle, usually applied to beast, butchery, a killing of oxen or other beasts for market, which comes from the root word to slay. To kill, to put to death by a weapon or by violence. It seems to be formed on the root of the word lay or to lay on. It only seems to be applied to animals and not men. So when men are said to be slain, it's usually with this, with this thought in mind. Or in a positive sense, when God slays the wicked. Interestingly enough, you can see the depths of this whole idea of murder and slaughter which permeated the very life of Paul before his conversion. We have to understand that this reality no longer resides in the believer's life. We're not to be those who look to slaughter other people because slaughter really comes from the root word hate. And hatred in Scripture is seen as murder. Not to kill not to defend, not to preserve life in the sense of taking life to save life or to preserve life. This is not the idea here. The whole idea of slaughtering is the butchering of somebody. This idea of butchering really comes in this, 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 this area of slaughter and hatred. 
Listen to what 1 John 3.15 says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This type of hatred God sees as you, even with your motives and your thoughts of hatred towards another, especially your brother, you might as well just be slaughtering him. This is the idea that, that the Scriptures give us to an unconverted mind. Paul prayed for his brothers. We see the differences in Scripture as now his life had changed. The song in his heart had completely changed. One time he was breathing out slaughters to the real people of God, thinking for himself one moment that he was of the people of God, but he wasn't. And, and John amplifies this very thought in saying everyone who hates his brother really is slaughtering his brother. Murder begins in the heart. In Matthew 8, 5, 21 and 22 it says, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. I mean, this just gives you an idea. It's not necessarily the words that are spoken. You say fool, and you're going to go to hell. Because in the scriptures, God calls people fools. Jesus calls people fools. It isn't the whole idea of the word, but it's in the nature. It's in the nature of what's being said. It's how it's being portrayed in the very heart of our humanity. In Galatians 5, Verses 19 and 20, it says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions. But Paul says in Romans 10.1, Brethren, this isn't through a fit of rage. This isn't through hatred anymore. I've been converted. I've been changed. I've been transformed. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. There's no greater way that we can love humanity outside of giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there will never be a larger reaction and persecution towards that gift to humanity. Because in reality, when you're offering somebody, when you're proclaiming Christ to somebody, literally at that very moment, that sinner has approached the door of salvation. They are on the brink of coming to know their God. They're on that very precipice of coming through and meeting God in grace. Coming right out of the very jaws of hell. You stand there with the gospel proclaiming God's word to a lost soul. That very moment you are offering them the gateway into life. Not death. You are literally offering them an opportunity to come out of God's eternal wrath. And come into God's eternal grace. Think about that for a moment. Think about why our lives can be such a threat to the enemy. Why is it such a threat when we want to preach truth in this church? It's a threat because the enemy knows the power of God's word. The enemy knows the power of the gospel. Only the power of the gospel can change someone's life. Self-help can't. Social reform can't. Beautiful speeches can't, but the gospel can't. And the enemy knows this. And the moment you declare that to another human being, that person very well could come out of Satan's grip into the very hands of God. And the enemy knows this, and he hates it, and he hates you because of it. And this is what Paul is saying. My heart's desire and prayer to God of Israel is that they may be saved. And they're looking at him as an apostate. 
They're thinking to themselves, listen, we are the oracles of God that's been given to us. We have the law. We have the feast days. We have all these things to be proud of. We were given these things. Who do you think you are preaching this message of Jesus Christ, the very one we reject, the very one our blind eyes can't see? And not only can they not see him, but by nature, they hate him. But Proverbs 8.13 tells us to hate something else. It says that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, God says, I hate. If we're going to hate something, let us hate evil. If we're going to rebel against someone, why not rebel against the devil? If we're going to move with hatred, let it be hatred towards evil, hatred towards sin, and not hatred towards one another. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them, you ready for this, that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Can you see a list of any greater adversity than this? Everything's there. against everything that we are designed to love. But by God's power and by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't love your enemies in, in the flesh. You can't perform these things in your own power. Only by the grace of Jesus Christ can we truly love our enemies. I would say, if you want me to be honest, which I hope I've always been honest with you, is this one of my greatest struggles Especially now, when my career of street preaching that lasted almost 13 years, and hopefully I'll be back there someday again, but I felt like that was a really a, a time of grace uh, in my life where really I could honestly say in a lot of situations that these opportunities were there, and by God's power, I was able to live out this love at some level. But it seems of lately when everything seems to be pushing us in on every front. And I'm seeing things in the news and on videos and different things and uh, of just how vile the enemy really is. And the attack upon the saints. There's a part of me that wants to retaliate with hatred. Wants to retaliate in ugliness, in war. But you see, this commandment is so strong because Jesus isn't asking us to love our enemies. He's commanding us to. He's commanding us to love our enemies. And not only to love them, but to bless them. That curse you and do good to them. Do good to someone who hates your guts. Do good to them that hate you and pray. Spend some time on your knees for those who not use you, but despitefully use you. And beyond that, persecute you. These are all the things that we cannot do in the flesh. There's no way possible a person can do this or even fake this. This has to be done by a conversion. And only by God's grace can this truly be manifest in our life. And listen, every law that's proclaimed in the word of God drives us to Christ. It doesn't drive us to ourselves to see what else we can perform to look good. But it drives us to this reality, this inescapable reality that we just can't do this. That's the point. The commandment where drives us to the foot of the cross, drives us to Christ to look to Jesus and call upon his name and cry out to him in prayer and, 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 and beg him that he would empower us by his spirit to be able to operate in such a way that would please him. Which brings us to our second point. A false heart produces false motives. Romans 10, chapter 2, moving on to the next verse. 
Paul says, For I bear them, Israel, witness, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish... Now these words are very powerful because I want you to think about this for just a moment. Seeking, okay? Seeking to establish. Think about that for a moment. If you would look at most religions around the world, you would see here very clearly that they're even called seekers, right? A lot of them. But the reality is that they're, all these religions are always seeking to somehow establish their own righteousness before God. They want to be perceived in such a way by what they do, not to one in whom they've trusted. They try to establish their own righteousness and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God, which is the gospel of Christ. They have not submitted to Christ. How many people have you have talked to in your life who seem to be spiritual, right? They're spiritual. And they're good people. They do good things and they got a good heart, right? But the Bible says that's all heresy and false. If you have not submitted to Christ, then your pretending false fake religion is nonsense. It's blasphemous, actually, towards God. It's really a clenched fist in the face of God and telling him that his son did not satisfy the righteousness of God in place of sinners, that I can do something else, that my zeal kind of will be okay because I can pretty much do what I want. Adam Clark, the great commentator, said that they have a zeal of God. What's meant by this is that they believe their law to have come immediately from God himself and are jealous of its glory and excellence. They conscientiously observe its rites and its ceremonies, but they do not consider the object and end of those rites, what they point to. They sin more through ignorance than malice, and this pleads in their excuse. For they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see, Christians can be guilty of this as well. You know, we, we read the, the scriptures in Romans where it says that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? And they're reduced to absurdity. They resist God. But I'll tell you something, in our day and age, there is suppression of truth even within the congregation of the righteous. And any time we see a suppression of truth in any form, whether it's from the wicked who know that God exists, preaching Christ to them, they may not know the beauties of Christ and His gospel, but they do know the judgment of God based upon their conscience. And they suppress that truth. They suppress it because they love their sin more than they love God. But many today, even in, in, in the churches in America, or even some of the churches that are true, the true remnant, will even suppress the truth. And their lives will be seen, even at times, as completely and totally absurd. Even a zeal that is not of God. A zeal that doesn't submit to Christ. A zeal that comes out of your own making. Your own inventions of man. What did Calvin say that our that our, heart, our, our, our hearts are like what factories of sin? That we are productions of sin. What exactly does the... We hear the word zeal. You know, we hear the word zeal in Scripture. But what exactly does that word mean? Well, zeal actually means... It means enthusiasm or passion or a word that really describes zeal would be a word called fervor, which means it's... It means intensity of feeling or expression. Fervor, actually, it's, it, it's an expression, ardor, passion, holy zeal, or earnestness. These are all the kind of, the words that would, would go along and have the same meaning. As If you think of it this way, we all know what orthopraxy means, right? Orthodox means straight line, solid doctrine, the truth, right? We know orthopraxy. What is orthopraxy? It means the practical application of these truths in our lives. But then we have what's called, that very few people know about, it's called orthopathos, which is the emotions and the affections of the believer, which are harnessed in truth, which are harnessed in orthodoxy, harnessed in orthopraxy. But these emotions and these affections are orthopathos. It's the affections of a converted believer. 
It's not just the outworkings in the sense of practicing our faith, but it's our emotions towards God. Similar, when, when Paul said in, in Romans 12, 10, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Outdo yourselves in honoring one another. Do not let your zeal subside. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We read this as well when we read uh, when Paul uh, says in the scriptures, he says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity, this passion, this fervor, this holy zeal, this earnestness, this, this expression, he says, is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Very similar with Jeremiah when he says, This fire is shut up in my bones. I just cannot keep it in. This is the compulsive reality. Another version says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It's this compulsive pattern of the believer. You always hear of people, you know, obviously that struggle with certain issues that they could be compulsive. They're recognized and identified in titles being compulsive people. But what he's, what, what, what's being said here is that the believer has new impulses and new compulsions, and that is of praying to God, seeking God, loving God, instilled within him are new affections, the orthopathos of a living God. Let's go a little bit deeper with this. The word passion actually comes from the Latin, which means passio, which means suffering. Or enduring. The use was extended to the sufferings of the martyrs. And from there a strong emotion. And finally to today's popular use to describe a burning desire. Paul had a burning desire to see Israel saved. He had a burning desire. From his transformation on the Damascus Road. He was a believer in truth. He was a believer in the living God. And he was energized by the Spirit of God. The very word pathos, like its Latin equivalent, passio, comes from the word pati, which means to suffer, means a state or condition in which something happens to a man or a woman. It's a state of something happening to you. He became converted and people say, what has happened to him? I remember when I became converted and I, and I was actually a personal trainer at the time and I had a lot of clients. And once I got converted, I was just completely like different to the point where people was like, what has happened to this guy? You know, this reality of conversion, this reality of change is something that happens to us. Abraham Michel in his classic book called The Prophets, he defines passion in the sense of pathos as... Awe and fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, saith the psalmist. Passion was regarded as a motive power, a spring, and an incentive. Great deeds, he says, are done by those who are filled with ruha, with pathos, divine passion. Webster's Dictionary of 1828 defines passion in the language of pathos as well as passion, warmth, or vehemence in a speaker or in language that which excites emotions and passions, strongly emotional, intense or passionate, zealous enthusiasm. And we know that the word enthusiasm comes from the ancient Greek word entheos, meaning inspired or possessed by God. The two key meanings in the English of the word are possession by God, supernatural inspiration, prophetic or poetic ecstasy, and rapturous intensity or feeling on behalf of a person, cause, etc. Passionate eagerness in any pursuit. This just gives you a little bit of idea that we could chew on and meditate upon and understand this reality is that when we become a true believer as Paul. We looked at Paul's past. We saw that Paul at one time himself was lost. He was dead in sin. But he was a proud and ignorant Pharisee like many others of his day. This was Paul before his conversion. 
In Philippians 3, 4, it says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes on to say, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As for zeal, without knowledge. For they have a zeal without knowledge. Paul understood this very well because he himself experienced this zeal without knowledge. Because he said his zeal without knowledge made him a persecutor of the church. Think about that. As to the righteousness under the law, blameless. In Galatians, Paul said, I profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But then he finishes, and thank God he does, with this point. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3, 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I call, I count all things, not some things, but all things, but loss for the excellency of the knowledge. There you go. There's the knowledge of Christ. Not a false zeal that led to no knowledge or false knowledge or invented fleshly knowledge, but the knowledge of Christ. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and you count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, when talking about zeal, he connected it with the life of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts 7. He says, True Christian zeal will seek to do the highest work of which sanctified humanity is capable. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, dealing with the death of Stephen, it says that they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their cloths at the feet of a young man named Saul. So we're getting a picture of here. I think it's really, um, it's really good that we try to understand where Paul was coming from in verse 1. When his desire for his people is that they would be saved like him. Because he understood what it was like to be a false convert. Someone that truly thought that they're in the will of God, but they're literally destroying the true people of God. And this is where Paul's heart was. It, it went from a false zeal without knowledge to a true zeal that was embedded in the life of the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ. See, just because you have a lot of zeal doesn't always mean it's grounded in Christ. Because sometimes zeal will come in, in a form of false spirituality as well. Sometimes we try to compensate for other things that we lack in our lives. We try to build a fortress with zeal to try to accommodate that and cover up for the deficit in our lives. I saw that a lot when I was involved in street preaching because what was happening is that a lot of people were neglecting their families they all wanted to be seen. They all wanted to be known. They all wanted to be videoed. They all wanted their picture taken at the expense of everything else in their lives. They thought if they could just achieve or perform enough that somehow this would give them not only the affirmation from God, but the affirmation from others. And the work that they were doing was not a work of the spirit. It was a work of their flesh. It was like a giant washcloth. It was like doing penance. Every time they would do something, it was penance. It was this idea of this false zeal that they were using as a blanket or a cloak of righteousness. And ultimately what it was, it was, it was that they were lacking in other areas and they were trying to make up for it in things that people would see as being spiritual. And if we could be seen as looking as a spiritual elite or spiritual before others, that would cover up a lot of our deficits and where God really tr truly causes us to be spiritual in the mundane things of life, right? 
the little things in life. God's not going to look at you on the day of judgment. Christ say, oh, look at all these great things that you've done. I saw you on the street corner. Or I saw you behind the pulpit. Or I saw you over there doing this and just feeding the poor. He's going to say, listen, I saw the way you treated your family. I saw the way you treated your wife. I saw your neglect in the things which I called you to in the things that I care about. And this really had even become a problem in my own life in the past where I had a hard time balancing everything out. And it really um, made me stop and think truly what is ultimately pleasing to God. What's pleasing to God? Is it what I think is pleasing to God? Is it being a spiritual superhero with a cape on that makes God happy? Or is it doing what God's called me to do in every realm and facet of life? In 1 Corinthians 3.13, it says, If I give away all that I have, and if I haven't delivered my body up to be what the ultimate sacrifice, everybody wants to be a martyr, right? Even if I give myself up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. It's nothing. Nothing. These greatest acts, even of martyrdom, are nothing if it's devoid of love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, performance-based, look at me, look how I sound. Because he says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, it says, For if a man thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Philippians chapter 2 3 through 11 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, I think about this at times when my little ones will come up to me and they always ask me at the most inconvenient times for a glass of water. I just get done tucking them in, I get downstairs and they want a glass of water. So what this means is I've got to get them a glass, go all the way back up there. And, I, and one time I, I was doing that and I was kind of grumbling to myself, but then I thought about it, you know, in scripture where they said, even if you give one of these little ones a cup of water in my name, you know, and I thought for just a moment, you know, the Lord does this purposely, you know, because he sees my attitude when nobody else can see me. I've got no audience. I'm not on video, not on social media. No one can see me. This is a private dealing here of the heart. Will you go give your kids a glass of water? You're not going to get a bunch of likes on Facebook for it. But you know what? It's pleasing to God in the mundane things of life. That hurts your feelings, anybody? Hurts my feelings. Galatians chapter 6, verse 12 says, As many as desire to make a good show in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Paul's talking about others, uh, these Judaizers, the, these Israelites that did not know the gospel, were were manipulating others and provoking others really to anger. They had a good show in the flesh and they were just, they were compelling other people to conform to their image, not the image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were afraid of persecution. They knew what really following Christ would consist of. That means a death of self, not self-help. That means you die. And they didn't want that. They wanted to glory in this reality. They would compel them to be circumcised, not because they were a lover of God's law and a lover of the gospel, but they were a lover of themselves and they want other people to conform to them. It goes on to say, verse 13, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law. They don't even keep it. But they desire to have you circumcised that they can boast and brag in the flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. 
but a new creation, the new birth. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer is to God for Israel that they may be saved. Bring us to the last point, which Christ is the end. Christ is the end. Romans 10, uh, verse 2 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, you have some, I don't know if you guys have ever witnessed to Mormons or not, but um, they always proclaim that Christ was once a human being, right? That became God, right? But the scriptures say that Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that contradicts this whole view. But this is the point, that Jesus Christ ultimately is the Alpha and Omega. He is the end of the law. Not the sense that the law is done away with. What he's saying with it, the law points to me. The satisfaction of righteousness finds its apex in Jesus Christ. It finds the end result. There's nothing beyond the Lord. There's nothing beyond Christ. Christ is the ultimate Fulfillment of all the covenantal promises throughout Scripture. All these things pointed to Christ. But Israel did not see this. They didn't understand this. Therefore, they did not believe upon the name of the Lord and were converted. But we must understand as believers, see, the end of all this is Christ. And he goes on to say, to clarify this, to everyone who believes. Jesus said in Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail or fall to the ground. Jesus said in Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and what? The end, saith the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty God. Christ is the end. He is the beginning and the end. He is the complete and total satisfaction of the believer. In Philippians 1.21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the original Greek, it reads, For me to live, Christ, to die, Christ. All of it is held captive by Christ. Our living and our dying are all held captive and enveloped and encapsulized in Christ. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is our life, the end of all things, Jesus said, all of those who come after me must deny themselves, die, take up the cross, and follow me. Your life is over. Your identity is over. The pretending stops. The striving stops. We learn to rest in Christ and be content with wherever he puts us, whatever he does through us, because ultimately for his glory. In John 5.39, when we're dealing with the false zeal of God that the Israelites had being ignorant of God's righteousness, it says that they, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And Jesus knew this. Jesus confronted me. He said in, in John 5.39, he says, Search the scriptures. Search them. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Another version reads, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. This is what he's dealing with. This is the end of the law. This is what the arrow is pointing at. It's pointing at Christ. Stop striving. Stop trying to develop your own righteousness. Don't develop your own religion because God does not accept your religion. God does not accept your way. He only accepts one way. That's the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus Christ. That's the only way that God accepts. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Do you believe this morning? Are you in a position, in a place in your life where you can know for sure that you believe in the living God, that you trust in Jesus Christ? 
that you have been transformed by the gospel. Because if not, you're in a very scary place because you're under the wrath of God. And at any moment, you could be in eternity. Do you realize that? That God has a million ways of taking humanity out. And most of the time, they're not prepared. Most deaths are not a deathbed experience. And if you're waiting for a deathbed experience to make yourself right with God, it's all fake anyways. Your moment could come anytime you're a breath away from eternity. You realize that. If you want to be included in the body of Christ, those who are saved, then you must believe upon the name of Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation. And if it's true belief, if it's true salvation, if you've truly been transformed, it's going to show up in your life as saving fruit. There's going to be manifestations in your life that declare that you've been changed. Not perfect, but that something has happened to you. That something has happened to you. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, once again, to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In Acts 16.31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Mark 1.15 said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If you have not repented of your sins against God, I would encourage you today and warn you today that you may not have another day, you may not have another breath. Repent of your sin. Turn away from yourself and turn towards the living God. Call upon the name of the Lord while he still may be found. We need a new heart. We need to repent from a false heart with false motives. And we need to understand that Jesus Christ is the end of self. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that your word has reached the very deep recesses of our hearts this morning. Those of us who are converted, Lord, would you call us to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? Would you call us and cause us to be men and women of prayer? Lord, would you call us to be truthful and to be honest? And to be godly even when nobody is looking. Lord, we love you and thank you. And I pray, Father, there's anybody in here today who does not know you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come upon them and cause them to believe. Cause them to see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. Be glorified, Lord. Be glorified over this day in Jesus' name. Amen.